friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. probably months now, coming out of the Advent season, we've been focusing on beholding Jesus and what that looks like, and it's been really a transformational series, which is not surprising. Uh, The whole verse that we've anchored this series in is 2 Corinthians 3.18 that talks about, as we behold Jesus with unveiled faces, we're transformed into his image. And so we've just been doing that as a body, as a church here at Skyline, and it's been uh, humbling, to say the least. Each uh, Sunday gathering, Monday worship, Wednesday evening, uh, he just continues to reveal himself to those who want to behold him. And the work is transformational. So today we're actually talking about uh, beholding via scripture via reading the Bible, which is tough because I don't want to get up here and tell you guys uh, the way you behold Jesus through scripture is you just read your Bible more. Or here's a certain way to read the Bible, like five steps to encountering Christ through scripture. Like that's not what today is about. Um, So humbly, I'm asking for a little bit of patience on this as we navigate it. But I I felt the best way to start was actually just with an anecdote of my own. Uh, It was probably three years ago when I was doing the Bible in a year. And usually I had attempted the Bible in a year. And I would stop at about Deuteronomy. Um, That was my desert experience. Like, you know, Israelite, 40 years in the desert. I had 40 days in the first five books of the Bible, and I was like, I'm done with it. I'm not doing it. Um, but three years ago, I found myself, like, actually encountering God through Scripture. I was beholding Him. Like, there was a new, like, His new qualities, and maybe not new qualities. I, I'm going deeper, going deeper into these, these things that I thought I already knew about God. I knew that he was gracious. I knew that he was compassionate. I knew that he wanted to dwell among us. He wanted to be with his people. He wanted to be our God and it like for us to be his people. But I found myself in Dallas, Texas, reading Leviticus weeping. The book of Leviticus. Weeping. Only because in that moment, the veil was torn back and I was beholding Jesus in the book of Leviticus. Because the book of Leviticus was no longer a law code or this ancient rule book that the Israelites followed. It was a way in which God was granting access for his people to dwell with them. Because 
at the beginning of scripture, with Adam and Eve falling and having to leave the garden, they could no longer be in, their relationship was fractured and frustrated. All right? We couldn't be in God's presence without death. But God so desperately wanted to dwell with his people that he made a way. Those laws in Leviticus were the way in which we could be with God in his presence, stewarding it. And obviously that's in the Old Testament context. Thank you, Jesus, for grace. But in Leviticus, I found a God who was gracious and compassionate, not overbearing or uh, judgmental or you have to follow this or you're going to hell. That's not the God of the Bible. It's not, and that's good news. So again, there's not a five-step plan that helps us behold God better through scripture because guess what? Beholding isn't formulaic. There's not a formula to beholding Jesus, but there is a shift in perspective happening that I want to talk about today, and it's this. When we open our Bibles, we enter into a space of encounter. When you open this, you are in the presence of a living God. And so thinking about how we wanted to go through this, I want to answer two questions this morning before we get back to like, okay, so how do we behold him through scripture? And it's going to, the first one's going to be really elementary. What is the Bible? What is the Bible? And well, yeah, while this question might be elementary, the Bible can be misunderstood and misapplied. And the results of this can be damaging and even harmful. Because of this, there could be mistrust for the Bible and what it contains. For this reason, I want to simply re <clears throat> reintroduce us to what the Bible is and the story it contains. The Bible is a collection of books, like a library. Like, the Bible is a library. It's a collection of books, all consisting of a unique yet compatible parts, which display the redemptive work of God in and through his creation. It's not a handbook of rules on how we maximize the quality of our lives. It's not a menial task in which we undertake to make ourselves feel good or justified before God. Like God's intention revealed to me in Leviticus, reading scripture is an appointed time and place in which we come near to him. When we behold God through reading his word, we become increasingly aware that we are not the main characters in this story we call life. And building on this idea, Eugene Peterson, an amazing author and biblical mind, says this. I probably can't read that. Maybe you can. I'll read it for you. Spiritual theology which is using scripture as text, does not present us with a moral code and tell us, live up to this. Nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well. The biblical way is to tell a story and in telling, invite, live into this. This is what it looks like to be a human in this God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. We do violence to biblical revelation when we use it for what we can get out of it or what we think will provide color and spice to our otherwise bland lives. That always results in this kind of decorator spirituality, which I love this, God as enhancement. Christians are not interested in that. 
We are after something far bigger. When we submit our lives to what we read in scripture, we find that we are not being led to see God in our stories, but our stories in God's. God is the larger context and plot in which our stories find themselves. A shorter version of that could be said, the beholding of God through scripture not only informs us of the one we serve, but how we ought to live in light of that revelation. This makes it important that we understand the narrative of scripture. And by doing so, we grow in confidence in the character and beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Understanding what the Bible is in the narrative of scripture actually provides us with a context and vision in which we are to live into. It's invitational. There's this study that I came across that was staggering. I almost didn't believe it. So I, I read through it multiple times. So I was like, there's no way that this is real, but it's real. Um, Arizona Christian University, Dr. Barna there conducted this uh, study back in 2021. So it's not completely up to date, but it's, just, it's close, 2021. He conducts this study basically seeing how Christian thinking intertwines itself with American worldview. And the results of this were pretty crazy. So he interviews uh, 5,000 people. That was the sample size. And all 18 and older. So these are adults, American adults that take this interview. And 72% of people in this, uh, this study, I'm actually going to pull it up real quick so I don't botch it. Yeah. Out of the 5,000, 70% actually self-identified themselves as Christians. And so as you answer, okay, I'm a Christian, well, then it would lead you to a next like question where, okay, what does that mean? Like, you know, what does that mean by are you a Christian? Are you a born-again Christian? Evangelical Christian? Are you theologically born-again? Believe me, I've read what does theologically born-again mean? No idea. I don't get that one. Um... <laughs> Born again, theologically born again. I, I don't know. Uh, but the, there's this last one. There's this last one, and it's integrated disciple. Integrated disciple. Someone who is living in the world, influenced by a biblical worldview. These integrated disciples have a worldview that's biblical. The, the Bible and, and the, the God that the Bible presents to us that w- reveals himself to us as we read scripture, he informs how we interact in our daily lives, whether at work, at home, with family. Guess how many people identified as an integrated disciple? 6%. Blake was onto that. <laughs> that dog will hunt right there. 6%. I'm like, there's no way. But I look at this, and, and so the, the idea of biblical worldview is a little like ambiguous in this study. And I think what Eugene Peterson said is that is it, living into what we see in Scripture, partnering with Christ as he builds his and expands his kingdom. But here's some things. Just uh, 52% of people who self-identified as Christian, this is not integrated disciple. This is just the people who said, yeah, I'm, I'm Christian. the Bible is accurate and a reliable word of God. 52% of Christians believe determining moral truth is up to the individual. There are no moral absolutes that apply to everyone all the time. 
60%, 61%. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect, and just creator of the universe who rules that universe today. 61%, believe that. Here's the most staggering one. Your most trusted primary source of moral guidance is your feelings, experiences, or advice from friends and family. 71% of Christians believe that. 4% of integrated disciples believe that. So you look at a world that we're always thinking, of, ah, it's so chaotic, it's, it's, everything's going, going wrong. Guys, we don't even understand the story that we're supposed to live into. That's what I'm getting from this. Like, the question is, how are Christians supposed to live in the way in which we are called if we don't even understand the story? This biblical illiteracy, like, that should feel like, that stabs me in the gut. 71% of pe people think that my, my own feelings, you know what that sounds like? That sounds like the, the very last verse in Judges that says, in those days, this is the worst time in Israel, in those days, everyone did what was good according to their own mind. Their own mind. That's where we live. So, I think, we, it's, I think it's good that we actually go over this. Like, knowing that Scripture has a narrative is good, but knowing the narrative of Scripture is better. Like, we need to know what the Bible is even telling us about, what the overall story is. And this actually allows for us, when we understand this, to enter into text, at least having a rough idea of what's going on. And so, I originally had this whole thing, my whole sermon was going to be me just repackaging the Bible for you, but that sounded vain, and it was way too long. Like, there's just no way to fit the Bible into 20 minutes. You just can't do it. Um, so I just did some bullet points here, and I hope you can see them, but I'll read them. So this is basically Scripture's narrative. God creates a very good world. Notice I didn't say God creates a perfect world. God creates a very good world bursting with potential, creates man and woman in his own image and likeness in order to help him steward and partner with him in the cultivation of that very goodness. But human beings fall, sin out of the garden, um, and the story progresses. Humans keep going worse and worse and worse to the point to where there's a flood, and then the flood's not even the worst part in Genesis 1 through 11. The worst part is the Tower of Babel, believe it or not. So the Tower of Babel, that whole sequence happens, and uh, right when you think, like, man, God's probably had it with human beings, what does he do? Genesis 12, he finds one named Abram and calls him out from his father's land. God chooses a people for himself, but spoiler, they're going to fail and they're going to fail, and they're going to fail, and then it's going to look good, and then they're going to fail again. And this is going to go on through exile and captivity over the whole life of Israel. And then there's going to be this moment, 400 years, radio silence. We call it the intertestamental time. No prophets speaking. These mouthpieces of God no longer speaking. But then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Mm. That silence was broken. And Jesus does his ministry, proclaiming good news, doing miracles, healing the sick, casting out demons. 
All the things we love about Jesus, he does these things. And the crazy thing is, he does them for three years. We have four books accounting for this man's life over three years. What he was doing in those other 30, I don't know. It's one of those mysteries that I'm just curious about. Like, what were you doing, Jesus? But all this proclaiming good news and doing all this thing stirs up a ruckus amongst the religious leaders of the day. And so Jesus is crucified, he's buried, and on the third day, as he predicted three times to his disciples in the gospel accounts, he raises from the dead. He appears to 500, ascends to the right hand of the Father where he is now. And he says to him right before he leaves, stay in Jerusalem until I send you this gift. Stay in Jerusalem. He appears to 500. Michael Miller actually at upper room is one who pointed this out. He appears to 500, yet only 120 are waiting for him in the upper room. Where are the other 380? 120 in the upper room. They wait. They're sitting. They're in a prayer worship meeting. Spirit of God falls on them. Tongues of fire. Nothing's the same. So from that point out on, God's spirit inhabits his people. And so now we live in this in-between time. These next two haven't happened yet, but they will happen. So we live in this tension. Jesus is coming again, and behold, he's making all things new. So the Bible begins with a very good world created by a very good God. The pages from that point on are filled with this complicated relationship between uh, human beings who fail, but a God who is incorruptible. And he has an insatiable desire to dwell and partner with his creation. And that's where it's going. He wins out in the end. He will come back. He will make all things new. And the people of God in this time get to actually give foretaste of that as we live and understand what the scripture is. And so the point of all of this is God is compassionate, good, gracious, kind, and loving, and he wants to be with his people. That is the God we encounter when we open our Bibles. This is the beautiful man we behold when we read his word. Because the Bible is simply this. It's a means by which we grow familiar with a man. The word, capital W, word, is alive and his name is Jesus. This word, every, every word speaks of a man who's wanting to reveal himself to you. And so what I don't want this to be, band, you can come back up. What I don't want this to be is You should read your Bible more. Sue, when she came up here and launched us into worship, she reads this verse in Acts. What was the, what was the difference maker for those uneducated men? They had been with Jesus. That's the invitation. When you open this book, you can be with Jesus. It's not the only way that God reveals himself. He's way better than that. But to, but to just say, oh, it's just a book, it's boring, it's daunting, I don't understand it, there's too much going on, Old Testament seems scary and violent, 
I just want to focus on Jesus. You can focus on Jesus no matter where you open this book. So the invitation is to open the book and behold him and be transformed into his image and likeness. Because we obviously, I'm not even talking about outside the church walls. I'm talking about inside the church walls. Obviously we need this because we don't even know what's going on. 6% of people would say that. I would hope that 100% of this church would be in that 6%. In his day, Jesus would always say this thing when he'd tell parables. He was a storyteller, believe it or not. Jesus told stories. Human beings love stories, all right? It's how we learn. It's how we, uh, we, we like relate is through storytelling. Jesus would always say this when he'd tell a parable. He who has ears, let him hear. And as I prepared this, I just kept going back to the phrase of just refashioning that where Jesus is saying, those who have eyes, let them see. He wants to reveal himself to us, guys. He's not hiding. He wants a curious people. He wants a people who love him the same way he loves us. It's because he loved us first that we can even love him. So I just want to read Isaiah 55. One, because it's scripture. (laughs) That's what this whole thing's about, right? And two, because it's titled Invitation to the Thirsty. And chances are there's probably people in here who've been hurt by misapplied scripture spoken over you desperate for something. You're desperate for encounter with him. So I just want to read God's word over you and invite you in. Isaiah 55 says this, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters and you will have, and you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without costs. Why spend money on what is not bread? labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and a commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you will not know and and nations you do not know will come running to you because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and turn into our God for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and 
do not return to it without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve for the purpose in which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills where hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Guys, if you feel like there is a thorn bush in your life, Come to the waters. We're going to have a prayer team up here. He's wanting to reveal himself to his people. And that invitation open is open to you today. Let's worship.